understand geopolitics, you must have the freedom to be honest. The More Freedom Foundation podcast. How are you, Rob? Uh, honestly, Rory, I'm a little pissed off. I'm not going to lie. Uh, we've had Uh-oh. Uh, this anniversary in the United States. Well, it's even ridiculous to call it in the United States, and I'm sure even my reaction is a little solipsistic. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, the United States decided uh, to destroy a country in the Middle East, and we've really just been covering, dealing with it quite disgracefully. Because of this 20-year anniversary, which should be probably only recorded with profuse apologies uh, and reparations to the country of Iraq, uh, we're basically allowing a lot of the main figures in this choice to destroy Iraq to sort of publish uh, justifications of themselves. Uh, most egregiously, Paul Bremer, the guy who ran Iraq as a imperial viceroy, a sort of potentate uh, for the first year after the invasion, uh, you know, was allowed to justify himself in a national periodical. The guy should be in jail. Uh, that's, of course, too much to ask, but uh, I didn't think it was too much to ask that uh, these people at least not be given a platform to defend themselves. But no, it's, I mean, in it's, some of it is, uh, now I was a, I supported the Iraq war, uh, but I was 23 uh, and I was not in a position of power. Uh, there are sort of two tacks that folks take, a distressing amount of folks uh, claim that uh, it was actually a good idea. Um, but there's also a whole bunch of folks who have rehabilitated themselves almost completely uh, and are continuing to give advice on foreign policy by sort of half conceding, maybe that was poorly executed. It's like, it wasn't poorly executed, it was a war crime. It was exactly what Vladimir Putin is doing in Ukraine, except with less justification. Uh, it, just absolute... And more professional. Yeah. Yeah, just the way it was, yes, it's true. Uh, what the U.S. did in Iraq was nominally more professional. You know, I think that if uh, the Ukraine war will end up killing uh, a lot more people. But Jesus, like, it's just amazing that we can. It's really frustrating, I think, Roy, because I had sort of envisioned that uh, I had hoped that our sort of pivoting to celebrate anti-imperialism by supporting Ukraine would allow there to be a little more consciousness of uh, how badly we had screwed up 20 years ago. But uh, I hoped in vain. I hoped in vain. Has there been any sort of help for the, you know, actual soldiers that were involved in this? I know you recently did a video with Task and Purpose and you've been chatting away. You know, the likes of him who are actually involved and affected by it, has there been much help for them Well, at this 20 anniversary mark? Well, the the VA is a tremendously complicated, as said, the Veterans Authority, right? In the United States, veterans are supposedly covered for healthcare. That might not sound extraordinary to anybody else in the world, but that's actually, in the U.S. context, extraordinary privilege. The problem, of course, is that the VA has experienced the same 40 years that the rest of the U.S. government has, and the quality of care has been declining. Uh, I know that the VA is filled with dedicated administrators, dedicated medical professionals, what have you, 
But just generally, they don't get enough money, and a lot of the people who are funding the VA don't believe that government is good. So I think that there are the there are a lot of veterans who are taken care of by the government in terms of health care or what have you. Uh, but I do know that a lot of veterans who have the choice will actually prefer to go on the private market instead, which is uh, a pretty well stunning indictment of uh, free healthcare because you know free healthcare is pretty hard to find uh, in the United States of how bad the U.S. government seems to be at free healthcare. And of course, going beyond that, there's just the multiple tragedies of the PTSD that veterans uh, experience. I think there's some measures, by some measures, there's a certain level of casualties in Iraq and then the the number of people who've killed themselves after their experience in Iraq is something like six to ten times higher than the, the, the number of folks uh, in Iraq. So that's, of course, that uh, remains a a uh, terrible situation. And as I think anybody knows, uh, the prestige of the United States has never really recovered uh, from this incredibly evil action undertaken by the Bush administration. And we've seen in recent weeks uh, development, uh, what I want to talk about today, that could be uh, the next step in the U.S. disgrace in the Middle East. I think some commentators are blowing this deal out of proportion, but there's... This is the Chinese data? So what it is, is it's a peace deal, so-called, between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And the probably the most significant aspect of it, from the perspective of the U.S. media anyway, is that this deal was facilitated by China. There was actually a meeting, I believe, between the Iranian and Saudi foreign ministers in Beijing that announced this deal. Uh, it's a it's a pretty huge slap in the face to the United States uh, when you consider just how committed the United States has been and remains to the region. Now, I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I think it's a phenomenal thing. Actually, one of my greatest concerns for the Middle East, for the Middle East and for the United States. The only people who are embarrassed here are the Washington, D.C. fools uh, who believe that people outside of the United States respect them rather than fear them. Uh, it's it's mostly uh, it's mostly fear. And it's interesting seeing uh, three countries sort of to some degree, stand up to the United States this way. But I do think it's really blown out of proportion. I don't think it is as significant, as, certainly as the Chinese want to sell it, or as the Saudis want to sell it as being. But it is significant, and I think we'll, we'll play with that over the course of this episode and sort of tease that out. Do you think China will be giving a lot more investment into Saudi Arabia in the hopes that, you know, secure oil? Not really. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I think that uh, China has made a number of investments in the Middle East. Is interested in making more investments, but the because the Middle East is more important to China because it does literally border it. So a happier, healthier, more prosperous Middle East is 
good news for China, would it not? Uh, I mean, there's, I think there's, there's still thousands of miles. There's the small manner of India in between. Well, they border um, Afghanistan. Well, Afghanistan's not really the Middle East, though that's certainly a line that's been... Um, okay. Uh, I'd say that's a line that's been blurred in world media and has been blurred in uh, certainly in U.S. military practice. It is kind of funny. I've talked on this podcast before about CENTCOM that includes all of Central Asia and the Middle East. And yes, uh, Afghanistan does border on China. You're totally right about that. But I don't think anybody before 2001 would call Afghanistan part of the Middle East. Uh, I make the. It's funny. You put. I. I certainly. I refer to Afghanistan as the Middle East as well in some circumstances as like part of shorthand. Uh, but I mean, these are, there's a lot like between Saudi Arabia and China, there is all of Iran, all of Pakistan. That's a lot of territory, (laughs) a lot of territory, but, uh, China is much more dependent on the Middle East than the United States is. That's for sure. Uh, the United States, to the extent that it has a strategic interest in the Middle East anymore related to oil, it's to control the oil that goes to China. So it does make a lot of sense for China to get more involved in the Middle East. But the the truth is, and this is one of the reasons why I don't think this uh, China, Saudi Arabia, Iran thing is such a big deal. The truth is that China just doesn't have any physical presence in the Middle East can never, and never overstates it, but will not in this half century be able to have the physical imprint on the Middle East that the United States has. To the extent that China is capable of acting as a diplomatic rainmaker in the Middle East, it is acting that way because the United States allows it to. Uh, China has they keep calling it a deal, and I, I think that's I think that overstates it. I don't think there's much in writing. I think there are some half-formed commitments here, but I guess we'll continue to call it a deal because that's what folks are calling it. It's just to uh, restore diplomatic relations, which is a very early stage exactly. of uh, peace negotiations. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but so, you know, China can do whatever it wants in terms of sort of peace dealing or diplomacy or whatnot. Uh, And next week, Israel can decide to bomb Iran. Then Israel, the United States and Iran are at war and China can literally do nothing about it as the oil industry of Saudi Arabia and Iran go up in smoke and China probably experiences serious serious ramifications both to its industry and to the ability to feed itself. Uh, so I, I, I do think that a lot of this uh, excitement or fear or or disquiet around this deal changing the Middle East power balance in some way uh, seems kind of illusory to me. I've talked in the past that I'm, uh, I'm definitely going to include a, a piece in my next produced video talking about how exactly that misconception, like, oh, didn't we pull out of the Middle East because we pulled out of Afghanistan in 2021? Uh, just really misrepresents what's going on. Yeah, like we 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 pulled 
what was our four or 5,000 troops out of Afghanistan in 2021, we've still got 10,000 plus troops in Kuwait, 10,000 plus troops in Bahrain, 10,000 plus troops in, uh, I think we're under 10,000 now in Qatar, uh, and numbers of troops in Jordan, Saudi Arabia, smaller numbers in Jordan, Saudi Arabia, uh, the United Arab Emirates, uh, other places. So it's, we've got 10 times more troops than we had in Afghanistan, just in the little crappy Gulf kingdoms in between Saudi Arabia and Iran. This idea that we've physically withdrawn from the Middle East is, I think, something that the Pentagon is perfectly happy to have people believe because it means people pay less attention uh, to the to how overcommitted and how much money we're continue to spend there. So yeah, I think on that level, the deal supposedly this idea that China is somehow supplanting the United States in the Middle East it just it just doesn't accord with physical reality. But diplomacy is not about physical reality. Diplomacy is about perceptions. And I do think that this is unquestionably a a real diplomatic perception win for China. Absolutely. A real perception win for China. So yeah, because you know, on you know, I think it was Friday, March 10th, yeah, China got to announce a deal uh between Iran and Saudi Arabia that both governments uh, agreed was uh, brought about with the help of China. I think we should we should maybe talk about like what this means, why this is great for the United States. One of my huge concerns is that the United States is perpetually on the cusp of a wider war with Iran. This is a war that would be another trillion dollar nightmare. It wouldn't be fought in Iran. I don't think the United States has the financial wherewithal to attempt to do anything like that again. But it would be fought at incredible cost in human life and destruction in the incredibly put upon countries of Iraq and Syria once again uh, with nightmarish humanitarian costs. And it would, even without the absurd troop commitments that we saw in Iraq and in Afghanistan, would cost the United States another trillion dollars, uh, and probably. So, would there be a lot of airstrikes from Saudi Arabia? Would that be how you envision this war panning out? It's funny, folks just sort of forget this, but twenty years ago, a lot of the bombing of Afghanistan happened by planes that, well, sorry, was carried out by planes that launched from Kansas, like in the United States. Like the the aircraft carriers are not useful. Uh, in a real conflict. Uh, I think it's it's common knowledge that if there's war in the Pacific, war over Taiwan, the first thing every aircraft carrier will do is get to the other side of the world as fast as possible because they're not uh, credible uh, war fighting machines against uh, peer competitors. And I think there's a serious suspicion that the Iranians would also be on that level of the ability to sink aircraft carriers because they're just really big things that are easy to sink. The last time aircraft carriers were useful in a fight was during World War II when like Hitler had rockets that could maybe hit London, could maybe hit a large city. Well, they did come in handy in the Falklands. Well, no, that's what I'm saying is that the last time, well, of course, they they came in handy in the Falklands, like against the Argentinians, you know, who had like uh -huh. two French missiles. Um, that is not- but the French had um, sort of not fully finished. So a lot of them didn't work. Yeah, but. yeah. This is not. 
Uh, the Iranians have already demonstrated capabilities far beyond uh, the Argentinians and the Falklands. Uh, aircraft carriers are good for the kinds of wars that the U.S. has been fighting since World War II, wars where the United States has every, every advantage in money, you know, essentially the, the modern equivalent of conquistador battles against the indigenous is the kinds of wars that aircraft carriers are used Ones where they don't have airplanes. Yeah, it's essentially wars where the other side doesn't have, is that a complete... Air supremacy. Is it, no, where the other side is operating in a different century of military capability. And so aircraft carriers, sorry, there was a law that was a long tangent because I hate aircraft carriers. Uh, but United States could bomb every military installation in Iran, every plausible nuclear site in Iran uh, from Diego Garcia, which is in the Indian Ocean. Uh, I think you could, they could probably do it with a lot of platforms without even much aerial refueling. They could do it from Germany. They could do it from a lot, lots of places. There won't be folks, you know, firing miss many U.S. folks firing missiles from Saudi Arabia. But Saudi Arabia would just be entirely obliterated regardless. The Strait of Hormuz would not be functioning. It would just be a catastrophic, horrific, horrific thing. Israel and the United States are perpetually on the cusp of launching this war. Iran has been acting with heroic restraint in the face of widespread civilian-focused terrorism from the United States and Israel over the course of decades. Uh, they could launch this at any time. But... Saudi Arabia, uh, because they purchase so many weapons, because Israel has investment in this concept of the Abraham Accords, has put a lot of time and money into cultivating Saudi Arabia's elite, uh, it does actually matter what Saudi Arabia's position on these things are. I, I don't, I'm not implying that like Saudi Arabia is going to uh, stop Israel from starting this war if Israel decides they need to do it. Uh, but it is a consideration. It is a, it is a consideration for the Israeli and U.S. elites that really want this trillion-dollar war with Iran. It is a consideration that does slow them down. So I think this is, this is a service that the Saudis, the Iranians, and the Chinese have provided to the world if it slows down the, the, the march to war. Uh, the march to a U.S.-Iranian war. So it's definitely a good thing, and it's great for the American people. Uh, it means fewer traumatized U.S. veterans. It means uh, at least a delay to our next trillion-dollar Middle Eastern war. So that aspect, uh, there's there's nothing to do here but but celebrate, and I think it's a great thing. Is there any way to prevent America wanting to start these wars, or is it just sadly an inevitability with america i think seriously cutting the defense budget would be a good idea i'm always reminded of once um the i think the army basically says don't give us x amount of money for tanks we don't need any we're not in a big war don't give us any money for tanks and obama gives them money for tanks because nobody wants to be the guy that's not giving the military money especially i think if you're a democrat because it's such an attacking point for the republicans so they do seem to be in, stuck in this, constantly giving them more and more and more and never backing down. Well, it's also just flat-out corruption. So the, exactly what you point to there is the, that's the rhetorical strategy. To always be, oh, I've got to defend the homeland, defend the country. How, how dare you not be adequately defensive? But it's, it's, it's straightforward corruption. Nikki Haley 
spent two or three years not in politics uh, between being she was the governor of one of the Carolinas, became Trump's U.S. ambassador, uh, went and got her first real job uh, as a non-politician in a decade or two. Um, it was exclusively for a defense contractor. She spent two or three years being massively, massively overpaid, bribed by a defense contractor, and now she's running for president. That's going to be her only high-paid job in her life that wasn't for the government that's going to be for a defense contractor. Which is as close to the government as you can get. Exactly. Like I call that corruption. I think that's, you know, they've bought... And she knew exactly what she was doing when she went to the United Nations. She didn't follow Trump's America First policy. She didn't follow, like, the the sort of skepticism of the past... 20 years of foreign policy mismanagement that Trump alluded to in his best moments. No, she just did straight up George W. Bush, Democrat, we've got to pressure Iran, we need to build missiles to face China, da, 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 da. I mean, she, it's, it's really gross. And it's also, it has something to do with sort of the, the hands-off approach to the, the rest of the U.S. economy over the past 40 years. Politicians have gotten used to the idea that they can't do anything about most of the economy, but by its very nature, defense spending is directly related to the government and always will be. So that's, that's where they do their corruption. You know, that's the, the, that's, it's, it, it's quite grim. There's a number of things that we could work on breaking there because it's not just the politicians, the most absolutely amazing and egregious thing, the New York times when they announced this deal, they went to the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Every time anything happens in the Middle East with Iran, uh, with Saudi Arabia, not every single article, of course, but a shockingly high number of them, there's a paragraph from the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies which is this Washington, D.C. think tank that is the most egregiously, disgustingly pro-war entity you can imagine. They got everything wrong for the past 20 years. It is a think tank full of folks funded by defense industry and funded by Israel and Israel-adjacent folks. And it is just the most worthless. They, they, they have gotten absolutely everything wrong, and they just want blood. That's all they want. They're the people who are behind killing the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, they are they, they're just nightmarishly wrong about everything. And they're just billed. And of course, they think that this peace deal, that deal should be in air quotes or what have you, uh, this deal between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia uh, negotiated by China is just horrifying. It's the worst thing that's ever happened. It's, you know, the United States falling out of power. It's nonsense what they're saying. And it is described in the New York Times as just a just a think tank, just a research organization in Washington, D.C. And they did, which is great, include a, after that, a couple paragraphs later, a statement from the Quincy Institute, which is a anti-war uh, think tank, uh, which is a very new and positive development to have a well-funded anti-war think tank in Washington, D.C. But they have to describe, in the New York Times, they describe it as basically like these effing hippies Whereas the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, oh no, they're they're the good guys. They're fine. So, like, I think we we need we need more critical journalism. Frankly, it it, it is obscene. It's it's an obscenity that New York Times still goes to the Foundation for Defense of Democracies 
this joke organization for the color commentary on everything that happens in the Middle East uh, in a news in a news story, not in like the not of the opinion pages, which are always lamentable. So yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot that would need to change. So that's for instead of speaking to someone from the Middle East. Yes, that is, I, 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 that's a, that's a great idea, Rory. <laughs> like imagine that. Imagine doing that. Uh, but no, that's not. That is not what they do. So we've seen the name of that organization reminds me of uh, the European Research Group. Have you heard of them? Oh, those nightmare people. Yes, of course. They're like a, they're like technically a secret organization of conservatives mm -hmm. that hate the European Union, but they have this fluffy generic name that makes it sound like, oh, they're Europeans and they do research, but no. So yeah, you're a peace in, or what is it, Democracy Institute? Yeah, the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Yeah. Yes, it sounds uh, very uh, hippy-dippy, but in reality it's, um, could we start a war, please? Yep, yep, that's exactly what it is. The European research, those are the Brexit people, right? Yes. We're not allowed to know who they are, but they are paid by the taxpayers, which is nice. What What a great, what a great thing. What a great thing. Um, so there's so far, well, I, I think I do want to talk, okay, so I'm skeptical. So I think I've established, I think this is a great thing that China and Iran and Saudi Arabia have done. It should be celebrated. It should be encouraged. It is fantastic. Uh, I don't think uh, it is a much of a threat to U.S. influence in the Middle East. I talked about just the physical aspects of it. Yeah, the Chinese don't have many bits on the ground. No. They have a base in Djibouti, uh, which is... But everybody yes, does. Everybody's got a base in Djibouti. And that is, you know, there's a lot of a lot of space uh, between Djibouti uh, and uh, the Arabian Peninsula. Um, sorry. So it's the physical thing, but also this is not something that was negotiated at great length by the Chinese. I think that what happened here was that Saudi Arabia was looking for another way to piss off the United States, essentially, uh, looking for a way to sort of poke their patron in the eye. Uh, Saudi Arabia is incensed because, uh, I think I talked about this in a uh, recent episode, they are incensed because the United States refused to help them conquer Yemen, uh, refused after six years, to be clear, of six years of backing their attempt to conquer Yemen, finally, uh, under Joe Biden, the U.S. government has stopped backing them entirely. And when the Houthis attained the capability to bomb Saudi Arabia regularly, the Biden administration said, you know what? You're on your own. We're not going to use a lot of U.S. resources to defend you from the country you've been bombing for seven years. So that's where a lot of the tension, that's something else I'd like to put in quotes, tension between the United States and Saudi Arabia comes from. It's just a fact that compared to the behavior of the Obama and Trump administrations, the Biden administration has largely abandoned uh, Saudi Arabia in the particulars of their invasion of Yemen. And that's the reason why this invasion of Yemen is ending. That's the reason why the p entire past year of Yemen uh, has experienced the most peaceful year 
since 2014. So this and I, that annoys Saudi Arabia. That really annoys Saudi Arabia, and that's why they want to bring China in to embarrass the United States. There's not a lot of real there there. Uh, the idea that China somehow started this process or made this this peace these peace overtures happen, I just I don't think that's that's entirely accurate. You know, maybe they did provide valuable um, the valuable last minute push to get this over the edge, and that should be celebrated for sure. You know, maybe that's something that that actually did happen, but this has been a process that has been ongoing since. Actually, since a particular day during the Trump administration, since September 14th, 2019, uh, it was on that day that the Houthis from Yemen, supposedly, I, I used to push against this, but it's pretty clear, with direct support from Iran, uh, knocked off 50% of Saudi Arabia's oil production in a single day. Uh, they were able to quickly get it back up, but the fact- That'll get you out of bed. Yeah. They were, yeah, they were able to put it back, but since that attack in 2019, the Saudis have been talking with Iran through intermediaries, trying to find a way to sort of make things happen. You know what? Maybe the Chinese did finally provide that, that, that final push that made things possible in a new way, but that's not really at all guaranteed. As you alluded to earlier, the main thing that has been produced here. And it is a real thing. It is a real thing if it happens. The Iranian and Saudi governments have not had diplomatic representation in each other's countries. Their embassies have been closed since 2016. This happened because the Iranians attacked an embassy, uh, a Saudi embassy in Tehran. This is something they tend to do. Uh, of course, they did that because of a mass execution of the Shia minority. Uh, that Saudi Arabia undertook. Uh, not to excuse embassy invasions, no civilized country should ever do that. Um, but Saudi Arabia was also doing some very, very uncivilized things. Were these native um, Saudi Arabians or were these from Iran? Uh, uh, native Saudi Arabians. I don't know to what extent they are given... So a bit of ethnic cleansing? Yes, absolutely. And I think fairly described as such. So it was 47 people, I believe, were executed. Uh, including a spiritual leader of that Shia population in Saudi Arabia. Uh, so this was rightly seen as outrageous and condemned by the international community. Uh, Tehran, the reaction of the Tehranis on the streets was also well beyond inappropriate. Uh, uh, it, was, I, it was the appropriate thing for the Saudis to close their embassy, I would say. It is not appropriate or sensible that that reciprocal embassy closure has lasted for seven years. So what this deal uh, announced Friday, March 10th, produces the most concrete thing that is, it is supposedly produced is the reopening of these embassies. However, it's the reopening of these embassies in two months time. So we haven't, we haven't actually seen this yet. Uh, I hope uh, and I have every reason to expect that these embassies will actually open but it's not exactly um, the, the, the changing of the guard. The world turned upside down here. Uh, it, it seems like Saudi Arabia and Iran are likely to go back to the same level of diplomatic interaction that they had in 2016. So that's the most concrete thing. There's been... So they're still not best friends, but 
things are getting better than them being mortal enemies. Which is great. Uh, and as the Saudis have lost in Yemen, as the situation has changed across the region, the Saudis have lost in Yemen, the Saudis have pretty much given up in Syria, uh, the Saudis are still angry about how badly the Iranians have beaten them in Lebanon, but it, it seems like the Saudis, or MBS specifically, is sort of moving beyond his uh, heroically overactive, I say heroic in a bad sense, heroically overactive uh, phase of his initial time in power. Um, it seems like he's willing to make his peace with Iran, uh, not because the Chinese convinced him or that this, that, the other thing, but because he now has woken up to the fact that if this war, and to be clear with all the nastiness that's going on in Israel right now, war between Israel, U.S. and Iran becomes much more likely because the Israeli government wants a distraction. As he sees that development, uh, he becomes more and more concerned and more and more aware that if this war happens, Saudi Arabia loses its entire capacity to produce and sell oil. Yeah, and I mean, that's another thing. Like, you think it was bad when the supplies of Russian oil and gas were somewhat disrupted during the you know, Russia-Ukraine war? You think that's been bad for the world in general? Imagine the entire Middle East shutting down. That's what a U.S.-Iran war would be like. And that's why MBS, Saudi Arabia, have been working towards a accommodation with Iran for like four years now. Uh, the Chinese have jumped in a little, you know, jumped in here uh, to put their name on it. And, and war power too. That's great. Anything that makes war in that region less likely is a positive win for humanity. Is there anything China would have done to create this to happen? Because it seems like these Iran and Saudi Arabia wanted to start up relations again. I think that China has been looking for a way to look like a good actor for a while now. Uh, I've talked many, many times about how uh, Donald Trump was their biggest opportunity since Pearl Harbor, and they screwed it up entirely. Uh, their wolf warrior diplomacy uh, was instead of reacting to Trump uh, by telling the world that, oh, you know what, we're the adults, you can trust us to keep the world system running while America goes crazy. Instead, they decided to out-Trump Trump with wolf warrior diplomacy or what have you. And it was just a, a tremendous, tremendous screw-up. Xi Jinping, over the past three to six months, has been on something of a charm offensive. I think he's begun to realize laterally just how much damage was done. In fact, he tried uh, to tried to build bridges with the United States itself. Uh, the great tragedy of the uh, balloon fervor was that Anthony Blinken was supposed to be meeting with Xi Jinping that weekend, which uh, I, I hate to be conspir conspiratorially minded, but uh, there are a lot of pathways I could have seen for someone in the Chinese government or the U.S. government to sabotage that meeting. And that's certainly what happened. That meeting didn't happen. But Xi Jinping has been looking for ways to look like the peaceful alternative to the United States, just going around the world solving problems. And he has visited in recent, this actually puts a uh, different spin on two visits that I had mocked uh, somewhat in recent months. Uh, in just the past couple weeks, I believe, not more than a month and a half ago, Ibrahim Raisi, the Iranian president, visited visited China, uh, visited Xi Jinping in China, 
Uh, and was it a month or two back? Xi Jinping went himself to Saudi Arabia and actually got the uh, very similar treatment to the famous uh, treatment that Donald Trump got when Saudi Arabia was his first visit as president and he touched the orb with uh, Sisi and all that. <laughs> oh, yes. I remember that photo. Oh, yeah. It was quite quite a thing. And Xi Jinping got it, got a very budget version of that trip. Um, and that this does seem like a culmination of that. So... I mean, it's just old-fashioned shuttle diplomacy. Go to places as a more powerful country and let them know that you care and you would like something to happen and you'd be willing to sweeten the deal in ways that are easy for you. Uh, this is the kind of thing that I really wish the United States did more of. There's a great article in Foreign Policy, came out in the past couple of days. Well, I guess this will it'll be a week back, uh, this will broadcast a week after we record it. A great article by Stephen Walt talking about uh, I think it goes a little too far. It it, it uh, makes the 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 whole deal look like more of a thing than I think it is. But uh, I think he makes some really good points about how this is just basic, good, solid diplomacy. Uh, every president, uh, Trump a little less so, uh, still talks about diplo uh, democracy versus authoritarianism or, or how the U.S. is making the world freer and better and safer. Uh, maybe that flies in Europe, especially uh, over the past year, but it really doesn't fly anywhere else in the world. And it's uh, Stephen Wald makes the good point that uh, China is setting itself up here as the big country that solves problems rather than the United States, which is the big country that goes around and screws things up. Um, which but a is... lot of complaints I've seen thrown at China, when you look at it, it's just China's putting in the legwork in these organizations, which places like Britain, France, America, were just used to being top dog and unchallenged. And it reminds me also of the Belt and Road. If you just look at China as a country investing in other parts of the world, <laughs> quite often they're not even the biggest investor. They're sort of middle of the road. But yet, oh, yeah. when China do these things, it's like, the end of the world, yeah. but it also is a cross between, you know, Western complacency. No question. No and question. Just good old fear mongering. Yeah. And the United States has just done so much to brutalize Iran over the, uh, and make it a brutal place uh, over the past 40 years that it's unimaginable that we could come into the Middle East and say, hey, you know, we'd like everybody to be friends. Uh, and that's 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 definitely that's a trick we've missed. That's a that's a real shame. Uh, and a real, a real sadness. And yes, Stephen Wald is exactly right. We have something to learn from China here. Uh, we'll know that Washington, D.C. is serious, and there's actually a serious competition between the United States uh, and China, like a real Cold War. We'll know that when Washington, D.C. is finally willing to give up its vendetta against Iran. Uh, until that point, uh, you know it's all just cosplay nonsense. Yeah. Because there's there's no there's no reason for us to care about Iran. The only real purpose that this that this um, serves is to give Israel a plausible enemy that they can use to justify brutalizing the Palestinians. That's the only functional uh, political thing that it does. And the political economy reason that we're still behind this, and the political economy reason that we allow Israel to have such a 
distasteful organization for its politics and political choices is because we just need an enemy to help us sell weapons. And we don't even need that anymore. We've got Vladimir Putin forever now. I mean, we've got Russia for decades. You're always looking to your next um, hustle. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I know, well, I guess there's also, a, I know this sounds horrible, but it's, you know, the war in Ukraine could end tomorrow. And I'm sure these um, people that make a lot of money out of American uh, weapons exports are like, we need something that we can rely on. And Iran and China give us that. Well, I first off, I hope and pray that the war in Ukraine ends this year. I, I don't think it's likely. It would be brilliant if it ended, but... But... Yeah. But... When it ends, it's not going to end with a straightforward Ukrainian victory. And unless we're incredibly lucky, it's not going to end with any kind of durable Germany versus France style peace. No, it's going to end with a South Korea type situation. And it's going to end with a half dozen to a dozen of the richest countries on the planet dedicating 2 to 3% of their GDP for the next half century. Uh, to buying expensive weapons from the United States. So even if the war ends, unless it, it ends on these impossibly positive, you know, unless, you know, the space aliens show up next week and they're hostile and uh, we all band together as a species or some, something like that. Old Ronald Reagan? Yeah, like, yeah it, unless it's something like that, like the defense industry gravy train in Europe isn't going to end, probably, honestly, in either of our lifetimes, Rory. Um, so, so yeah, we don't really need Iran at all anymore. And like, nobody should take any U.S. politician talking about the threat from China at all seriously until we've given up on the Iran vendetta. I think that, that I think that's a good point. Like, cause it, it's, it, so that'll be a great sign that China has, yeah, yeah well, you yeah. know, crossed the Rubicon essentially. That's true. China will be, be, will know that China is a serious world competitor when the United States gives up its Iran vendetta. I think that's a real, that, I think that's a, that, that, there's a tweet right so there. So good terms with Iran is a symbol of bad terms with China? Not necessarily bad terms, just just that uh, that's when you know the competition has actually started. It's actually real? Yeah, that's when you know the competition is actually real. You know, I would say something similar with Russia, but that, that ship has sailed. Now Russia is just a, an appendage of China at this point. Um, and that's not going to change. Yeah. Uh, uh, on this On this deal... Um, so supposedly in recent days that there's been further aspects of this deal have come to light, um, that would be very significant. <laughs> I've been doing a lot of huge, if true on aspects of this, uh, deal supposedly, uh, and there are statements from both governments to back this up. Supposedly there's going to be less subversion on both of their parts. Uh, this is a huge concession on the part of Saudi Arabia. I think that for sure there were some attempts by the Iranians to support Shia groups within Saudi Arabia. That's for sure. Uh, Saudi Arabia, along with Israel, but I think a huge chunk of it is Saudi Arabia. And it's the Saudis, so they pay more and overpay for everything. Uh, but the entire uh, infrastructure of anti-Iran politics in the United States and in the world is funded massively by Saudi Arabia. We're talking about Washington DC think tanks. We're talking about international networks of uh, dissidents slash refugees, some of which are really great organizations that deserve to be supported, but a lot of which are lunatics. 
you know, the kinds of folks who fund multi-million dollar campaigns against the Iran nuclear deal, against uh, non-proliferation more generally. Uh, so if Saudi Arabia was really going to stop funding those organizations that are dedicated to the downfall of Iran, then actually you could you could actually see what we were just talking about. You could see Washington, D.C. beginning to shift its focus a little bit. Uh, there's still plenty of Israeli organizations and defense contractors in the United States that are really committed to war with Iran, but the Saudis pay for a lot of that stuff. So if it were true that the Saudis were going to stop uh, funding international campaigns to overthrow the Iranian government, uh, that would be a really, really, really big deal. I don't buy that at all. I don't buy that for one minute. <laughs> Frankly, I just don't, I don't see it. How long would it take to see something like that? It would It would take months. It would take months. It would be less than a year then. We'd start to notice these organizations winding, you know, not attacking Iran as much. Well, I, I think you could, you'd, you'd see it on Twitter first. Uh, my, I don't, I don't have to face this much, but my understanding is that if you're a uh, pro-peace uh, voice of any stature uh, on social media, you get just constant, constant harassment by bot networks and uh, fake personalities. Uh, I think there was famously a personality that was entirely invented who would get interviews, who would get interviewed, uh, just a fake person who would get interviewed in... Like newspapers? Yeah, yeah, U.S. news media. Okay. Um, to talk about how terrible the Iranians were. This is famously just one of the many, many... There's a lot of really, uh, a lot of effort and time has gone into talking about Russian election interference or political influence in the United States. And it is, you know, it's probably unfair to say it was a small fraction. I mean, Russia today was a big investment, um, but it, it is certainly smaller uh, than the amount of money and effort that Saudi Arabia has put into confronting Iran in U.S. media, politics, and social media. Uh, so I think the first indicator would be if uh, folks who do not want to start this war in Iran, uh, Iranian diaspora figures, uh, political figures who supported the Iran nuclear deal, if they noticed a market decline in the amount of harassment they're getting on social media, that would be an indication that Saudi Arabia is actually doing this. Interesting. I would be surprised if anything comes of it. And... The other half of this emerged, the only plausible other half of this, because you'd have to have an extraordinary defunding of a lot of U.S. and international organizations by Saudi Arabia to actually see this happen. Uh, and there's very little that Iran does that would be comparable. Now, this is very key. Uh, in recent days, we may know more about this by the time this uh, episode airs in a week's time, the U.S. and Saudi governments... Not the Chinese, not the Iranians, but the U.S. and Saudi governments claim that because of this deal, Yemen has committed to no longer arming the Houthis in Yemen, which um, I find even less credible than the idea that Saudi Arabia is going to stop supporting anti-Iran U.S. think tanks. Uh, it just doesn't. It just doesn't seem likely. Well, it's exactly what Saudi Arabia would want. Yes. And that's key. The, now, the Iranians uh, have never admitted that they're arming the Houthis. 
Uh, but we all know that's what's happening. So, of course, the, it would be very difficult for the Iranians to put out a statement saying, oh, of course, we've we've decided as this new big peacemongering commitment to not do this thing we never said we did. Um, but it's very telling that the U.S. government and the Saudi government are putting about the idea that Iran has made this commitment that I can't see how they would ever actually fully make. I think it would be amazing if the Iranians were uh, as some kind of measured system of orderly commitments said, OK, we're going to stop giving the Houthis certain kinds of weapons and we're going to stop by this date. If Saudi Arabia does this by that date, that would be amazing. I think it would be good at this point in the development of the Yemeni conflict as the Saudis are stepping back entirely. It would be good for the Iranians to step back a little bit for sure. I, I would support that wholly. Um, that would make the, the chances of this civil war actually ending a lot higher. That would be good. But I think what's happening to have the U.S., the Saudi Arabia, and crucially the U.S. government put this out, is what they're doing is they're establishing an impossible standard for Iran to meet that they can blame Iran for the failure of this deal in a couple months' time. So they can say, oh, we would have reopened our embassy in Tehran if uh, the Iranians had really stopped arming the Houthis the way they promised. So I see in that, in that news story, I see a pathway through which absolutely nothing will come from this. Because the Houthis can say, yes, we've stopped sending the heavy missile components to the Houthis, um, which would be a huge deal and be great for the Saudis. But then we're still sending money or weapons or small arms or this, that, the other thing. And the U.S. and Saudi Arabia can say, oh, no, no, this wasn't the full thing. It, it just, I, I find it really, really hard to take seriously. But I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing for China to have done. I think it's a great thing for Iran and Saudi Arabia to have committed to. I'm just really, really suspicious. Do you think this could reduce protesting in Iran? Well, the protests in Iran seem to largely be over. Uh, I think it's not a... Uh, I mean, it's ongoing. There's, there's certainly been massive changes within Iran. Uh, the not explicit changes. But my sense is that at least among uh, more privileged urban inhabitants of Iran, uh, the old hijab laws are fading away or they're becoming much less burdensome. It's a, an example of uh, sort of an authoritarian system just simply giving way because it has to. And my understanding is that the protests themselves have diminished. Uh, I think uh, an Iranian regime advocate would tell you, well, of course, these protests were all the result of Saudi money, which is uh, not true. Um, they're very real, very legitimate reasons why uh, these protests were continuing. Does the, if there is a real fall in Saudi uh, money put towards uh, promoting uh, these uh, protests internationally and nationally? I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that, that does hurt the cause of the protesters. And I guess, I guess that's a sad thing, but um, I, I'm more concerned about avoiding the trillion dollar war and another million dead um, uh, Iraqis and Syrians. Do you think this has reduced Saudi Arabia's ambitions uh, of invading its neighbors? I would hope so, man, because it was a very weird moment that we saw. You know, in the 1960s, Saudi Arabia had 
ambitions in Yemen uh, was a big force behind the civil war, but they didn't start the civil war. That was an Egypt thing. Um, and it's, it's a real, MBS is a very disruptive figure. Saudi Arabia desperately needs a disruptive figure, but they sure as heck did not need a disruptive figure in the sense of, oh, I'm going to go invade Qatar. I'm going to go invade Yemen. I'm going to uh, kidnap the Lebanese prime minister. And I, I think the the hope is that MBS has now grown out of that phase and he's been you know, becoming less insane. He's pushed his boundaries and he's found as far as he can go. I, I Man, I hope so. Man, I hope so. I think the last thing that um, I'd like to say is that I just don't see this as a meaningful diminution of U.S. prestige or power in the region. It, it's I just don't I just don't see it. I, I think that the avoiding this U.S. Iran war for however much longer as we can avoid it is a great thing. Uh, for the United States, it is a great thing for the region, and it's not like the United States doesn't have bases everywhere in the region. It's not like Saudi Arabia has any meaningful independence from the United States. Uh, this was just announced uh, over the past week after the, the big deal between China is Saudi Arabia is buying 78 787s from Boeing which I think the, the number is going to be lower than this, but uh, you know, at, at sort of market value, that would be a $37 billion purchase from an American company. Um, doesn't, really, doesn't, doesn't really look like Saudi Arabia is going its own way, does it? Because there is a fledgling Chinese, well, not fledgling, but China's trying to muscle in on the uh, commercial aerospace industry. So you'd think uh, if it did mean anything, they might be buying them from China. Oh, uh, well, yeah, I think I'm not sure what the status of that company is, but if they really were declaring independence from the United States, they could have bought Airbus, you know, um, and uh, they, I, I think it's pretty significant that they made such a massive purchase from a U.S. company after it's sort of the distinction between PR and like, we know who's really our daddy, you know, it, it's sort of it, it's sort of uh, that that was the vibe that I got from that. Yeah, uh, actually, I want, I want to say, I feel like my, when my take on something is is soaked clearly from it, I think I more or less, I, I got that news source from a uh, the Foreign Exchange's Substack newsletter, which I highly recommend. Uh, it's uh, a real resource for me. Uh, this guy recounts the news of the, and I think that what I said right there was almost verbatim one of his paragraphs, so I should probably... Okay. Uh, I should probably... Uh, check him out? Uh, yes, you should check him out. Uh, I, I didn't, didn't want to plagiarize him. Um, I'm a big fan of the Foreign Exchange's uh, Substack. Uh, it's sort of a thrice weekly summing up of one guy's version of everything in the world that's worth paying attention to. And, uh, and we'll pop that in the description. Yes, we will pop foreign exchanges in the description. Uh, but uh, don't let this uh, last-minute bit of pitching of something else distract you from the pitching of my own stuff, which is directly to follow. The More Freedom Foundation is also available on YouTube and TikTok. Rob's Twitter is RobOLaw, and he's also written a book called Avoiding the British Empire, What It Was and How the U.S. Can Do Better and music provided by Kevin McLeod.